0: God, we come to your word as people needing help, and so we pray uh, that you would help us, that through your word you would minister to us, you would encourage us, you would build us up, you would give us, uh, you would give us exactly what we need. God, you know our frame, you know that we are dust, you know that we're weak, um, you know that we struggle, you know that we need mercy. And so would this uh, time in your word be uh, a means of grace to us? Would you work through your word to refresh us and to encourage us and to point us to your son, Jesus Christ, who is the hero of of the scriptures, who is the hero of our lives and who is the savior of the world. So God, by your spirit, make our minds uh, attentive to your word. May may you help us to be humble and contrite, trembling at your word, seeking not to uh, master it, but to be mastered by it, to not reign over it, but to submit to it so that we can grow closer to you. Would you do this for your glory? Would you do this for our good? We pray in your son's name. Amen. So, L- Larry David, uh, co creator of Seinfeld and also Curb Your Enthusiasm, um, two, sh- two shows. I've only seen maybe one of Seinfeld um, and none of the other one. But these are, these are uh, so, <laughs> he's a great guy. Um, so these, but these are highly acclaimed sitcoms. Like, people would rank them in, in some of their, their best shows of all time. And uh, and so that's really interesting when you consider this story. So here's this person that's known for creating, not just helping with, but creating one of the most revered TV shows of all time. And uh, he tells us one of his friends tells this story in a in a Rolling Stone article. Uh, they went to a, a Yankees game, and you know when you go to a game, they put an image of famous people up on the screen when nothing's happening during the game to keep you entertained. So they put Larry David up on the screen, uh, and the stadium just stands and cheers, and claps, and, and it's just this awesome, awesome moment. Um, and yet, later when the game was over, as Larry David is leaving the stadium, somebody sees him and yells, Larry, you stink! And his friend describes that in the car ride home, all Larry David could talk about was that one guy is that he had almost 50,000 people in his stadium clapping for him, cheering for him, saying how awesome he was and his work was, appreciating him. And in the car ride, all he was saying was this, who was that guy? What was that? Who would do that? Why would you say something like that? This friend's like, that's all he would talk about, the car ride home. And that introduces us to this idea of critics math, that one insult or critique plus 1,000 compliments equals one critique. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever felt that? This idea that you could have the approval of almost everybody in your life, but you know that one critique, that one insult, that one look, that one place where you lack someone's approval just overshadows everything else. This series that we're in right now, Spiritual Renewal, is about being revived in our joy, in our faith, in our energy, in our spiritual life with Jesus. And and here's what I want us to see today is that the more we grasp the approval we have before God, the one person whose approval truly matters, the more we'll be renewed in our faith. The more you grasp the approval that you have before God through Jesus, the more you will have joy and renewed life in your faith with him. The main idea we're gonna look at is this idea of joy comes from a deep grasp of our justification. That is a term for our approval with God. Joy in, in life comes from a deep grasp of that. So we're going to look at two things from, from Romans 5. We're going to try to under, understand the magnitude of justification, our approval before God. We're also going to look at how do we experience our justification. So how do we understand our justification? How do we experience it? Let's look at Romans uh, 5, 5 uh, 12 through 17. So if you, have your, um, if you have a Bible, you can turn it on or, or open it or just look up and we'll have it on the screen for you. This is the Apostle Paul writing um, his... his um, this lengthy, just deep um, explaining of salvation in the letter of Romans. And we're popping into the middle of a chapter or middle of a section where he's talking about this idea of justification. How are we declared uh, a righteous that is fully approved perfect before God? And, and he writes this in 12 through 17. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This text is presenting us with the fundamental problem of the human condition— it's a problem that we inherit, and it's also a problem that we contribute to. and it's this, uh, this problem of our spiritual genetics. So just as our, uh, our ancestors pass down to us uh, genetics that, that manifest um, in, in, uh, in us physically, you and I are spiritually, in a mysterious way, spiritually connected to the first human being, Adam, who passes down to us. A set of spiritual genetics, a spiritual DNA that leaves us and all people with this problem. And this is what the Apostle Paul is explaining in verses 12 through 14. What he's doing in this whole passage is he's positioning two people. He's positioning one man, Adam, the first human, we see him in the book of Genesis, and the other man, Jesus, who we see in the New Testament and, and following. And he's saying, that these two figures are representatives for humanity and were linked in a spiritual way to one or the other. And he's saying that in this link, our default, what we inherit just as, as human beings is we are in Adam, this idea of being in Adam, this idea of being spiritually linked to the first human, Adam. And the problem with being to the linked to the first human Adam is that if we, we know the story of the scriptures is is that Adam didn't started off great and, and didn't end so high. And so what Paul is explaining here is that, well, sin came into the world through one man, through Adam. Adam opened the door and then it came to all of us, and through sin, death came, that's physical death and spiritual death cut off from God, because all sin, this this is, I think, I think you can look at this a a couple different ways, but that all sin is is by our nature we sin, and by our choice we sin, we're implicated with Adam. And the idea is this: is that instead of, because of Adam, our our nature that we inherit from him and our choice, instead of being approved by God, we are actually. Given, we've earned, we inherit, and we earn the status of being cut off from God. Condemned before God, the opposite of justification. Because the treason that Adam commits by rejecting God flows through our veins. Which we know, in part, though we may not put it in these terms, we know in part because no one had to teach us how to lie. No one had to teach us how to steal. No one had to teach us how to fudge the truth. No one had to teach us how to explain a situation with all of the facts minus the four facts that kind of cover our behind so we end up looking good. No one had to teach us that. That's not a seminar you took, and yet all of us have PhDs in that type of stuff, right? We can do that really well. Why? Why is it that every single human culture that you look in, you will find hate, violence, anger, Racism, oppression, like why, why is it? Why is it any time period you go, you'll find these things? Why is it that no culture has solved those problems? Why? Because there's something fundamental about us. I Christianity gives the clearest, most compelling answer is that we inherit the spiritual genetics where God, we're made in God's image. There's much good we can do, but there's also this brokenness in us. And Paul says that this comes from Adam, that we are in Adam Adam was our representative. Think about it like this: in a positive flip, Adam was the representative of humanity in the early books of the uh, early chapters of the Bible, Genesis one through three. Adam cultivates the earth as all humanity is called to do. Does it with Eve? They walked intimately with God as all humanity is made to do. He was the prototype for humanity. He and Eve were the prototype for humanity and all their privileges. But we also uh, inherit their their nature to turn from God. So think about it like like this. When you have an ambassador for a nation that goes to another nation, and that ambassador totally just blows it. How's that gonna impact the rest of the nation even though they weren't there? Right, it's not gonna go well. They're gonna cut off the trade restrictions. Or they're gonna do all sorts of stuff, right? This idea of representation. Which is hard for us to get because we think so much in terms of me, individual, individual first. We're not in a, a Western American culture where we think community and representation, but but that's the the, the essence here. And so in Adam. We are cut off from God rather than justified. And, and Paul gives it this sober assessment. Look at what he says in 14. He says, death reigned, a spiritual death because of, because of sin entering the world. It reigned over all humanity from Adam to Moses. And he's given this idea that even Moses, this great spiritual leader, he wasn't able to undo what Adam did. He says in, in 13 that sin was in the world before the law was given. Sin is not counted where there is no law. He's basically saying uh, this idea that even before people had God's law, had the Bible, sin was was still flowing and active and there in us. That's how deep these roots go. And Paul says death was reigning. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie The Road or read the book by Cormac McCarthy. Um, I mean, if you're watching the movie, be prepared for an emotional journey. It's a bleak movie. It's a bleak movie dark and, and just kind of a, not frightening in the sense of uh, scary, but f- frightening in the sense of emotionally draining. It's a story of a father and a son, and the, the, the world has basically been decimated by, by some catastrophe that they don't explain. And this father and the son just travel through the whole landscape looking for life, looking for hope, looking for food. And all they find is death, decay, and people trying to kill them and, and, and take what they have. It's just bleak. And, and the sense that we get of this verse 14 is just this bleak picture. Death reigned because we're, we're this, this spiritual brokenness in us that death reigned. But but I love, I love this. Anytime you see the Bible talk starkly about something, you just have to keep reading because it's in that darkness that God's light comes to shine. Look at verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. And look at what, look what the apostle Paul says, for if many died through one man's trespass, so he's basically saying, if many were infected with this, this allergic nature to God, this sinful nature from Adam, if many were given that much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. So so Adam's sin brought judgment, right, 16, condemnation, but the free gift following many sins brought what? Justification. Look at the contrast Paul is saying. Through Adam. We're all condemned, but God wouldn't stop there. Into this bleak picture of verse 14, God sends his light. He sends the light of the world, Jesus Christ, so that despite our sinful nature, despite our sinful choices, that's not the final verdict. We can be moved from being connected to Adam and being tied to our sins to now being lavished in grace. That we move from being cut off from God to being restored to God. We move from being condemned to being justified. We move from being at odds to now being approved and welcomed. That's the picture that he gives, this free gift. And look at how many times free gift happens in verses uh, 15 through 17. Free gift, free gift, free gift, twice in 16, once in 15, free gift of grace. That as the world stood guilty before God by our nature and Adam, but also by our choices, God didn't bring down the gavel. He doesn't put the gavel down. He doesn't put the hammer down. He doesn't just render the sentence. What he does is he gives the guilty a gift. How many judges do that? Wouldn't that be all over the news? If there's a major court, court case and the person's guilty and the judge says, and the sentencing, everyone's ready, yes. how many years, how many years, how many years? And the judge says, I've brought you a gift. Wouldn't that be strange? Recently, there was a judge who, who sentenced somebody who was who's really having a hard time. They did something that was wrong, but it wasn't a, a felony. They sentenced them to overnight in jail, and you know what they said? I'm going to stay with you in the cell. That's strange. That's not normal, standard, fair. What God is doing here is not normal, standard, fair. And if we see it as such, then it's no wonder we have no vigor in our life of faith because this has all become taken for granted. This is incredible. That's why Paul continues, says, free gift, free gift, free gift. This is a scandal. you to think about some of the uh, recent cultural things that have been, been popular, the serial podcast, this, this podcast about somebody who, who maybe their trial wasn't fair and just how many people started listening because of this hunger for justice. Was justice served? Was this right? Think about the O.J. Simpson documentary uh, that was put on recently by ESPN, this long, like 10-hour, five-part thing um, where it's just detailing this, this case, and you just see this evidence, and you're wondering, all this evidence, yet this person was declared innocent we're so compelled by this. Why? Because we have a strong sense of justice. And yet when we look at the gospel, the story of Christianity is that God doesn't put on us the just thing that we deserve. We want justice in earth's court, but in heaven's court, God doesn't put on us the sentence we deserve. What does he do? He puts it upon himself because of his love. This is the essence of justification, that in the courtroom of God, in His sight, we're we're guilty, but God is a holy and loving judge. He has pity for us, and so what He does is He puts the verdict, the judgment, the penalty upon Himself through His Son. And that's why Paul is making this contrast, that that through Adam, you get condemnation, but through Jesus, you get justification. Through one man, sin spread to all people, and so spread death, but through Jesus Christ, you know what spreads to all who would receive this in in verse 12? grace upon grace. Justification. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 puts it like this. It says, he, uh, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this is why you see the Bible always talk about in Christ, in him. It's this idea we're through faith in Jesus, we're spiritually united to him. I wonder how much you know this, that through Jesus, God fully approves you that through Jesus, God's smile is upon you, always. I wonder if you you know this, that, that through Jesus, there's nothing, because of his justification for you, there's nothing that you can do that would make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do that would make God love you less. I wonder how much we know this. Or how much we hear that and we say, I know that, but, I, but we immediately begin to qualify it by a billion things. Instead of understanding justification says, our sin put upon Christ, Christ's perfect life put upon me, and I'm fully approved before God the Father. Sure, we can do all sorts of stupid stuff and grieve God's heart, but our justification can never change because Christ cannot become unnailed from the cross. Our sins cannot become unpaid for once they've already been paid for. We cannot become unrestored to God once He has already once and for all restored us. We're justified through Jesus. Justification, think about it like this. It's just as if I never sinned, just as if I always obeyed. Do you think of God viewing you in those ways? That He looks at you as if you have never sinned once? Or do you just look at you the way you look at you? just as if I never sinned. This is a legal courtroom term that God treats you as if you've always been perfect to him, devoted to him, loyal to him. I wanna bring this to the heart level and it's a great writer, Elise Fitzpatrick, she puts it, puts it like this. We can throw this up on the screen in, in a moment. She, she says it like this to push justification into our hearts. She says, because God has credited or imputed Jesus' perfect obedience to you, when God looks upon you, he sees you as a person who always does the things that are pleasing to him. "...is so focused on accomplishing his will and work that doing so is your daily food." That's how Jesus described in John 7. "...a person who doesn't seek your own will but seeks his will instead, who doesn't seek to receive glory, praise, respect, worship from others, has always kept all his commandments, lives in such a way that your life brings holiness to others, loves others, and lays down your life on a consistent basis." lives in such a way that the people around you know that you love your heavenly father more than anything else, seeks to obey every command so that righteousness will flourish. This is how God sees you. You trust Jesus. The moment someone trusts Jesus, this is immediately how God sees them. He sees them as he sees his son, absolute perfection. It's not that you're actually perfect, but an exchange has happened through faith in the cross of Jesus. Do you you live, do we live with this sense of God's approval? With a deep grasp of our justification. So every other religious system is going to tell you, you've got to earn your righteousness through service, good living, prayers, kindness, charity. But the gospel is about receiving righteousness through another person. It's about receiving it through Jesus. And this is why Paul says this in 14, that Jesus, that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. He's basically saying that Adam was the first representative, but there's a new representative who does something greater, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And this is so critical. If you want to have energy, vigor, and joy in your faith, this is so critical to get how approved we are because if we flip earlier to Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, we see that it's justification that leads to joy. Think of the critics' math. The voice of one critique is louder than the approval of many, but when we grasp the approval of one person, God we can hear the voices of as many critiques as possible and still be full and secure in our identity because of the magnitude of what Christ has done. Look at, look at Romans 5, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So notice what this passage is doing between connecting justification, peace, approval with God, and rejoicing. The link is there, that as we grasp our justification, we become people who are full of joy in our faith, in our life, because we understand that no matter what may come our way, no matter what critiques may come, we have God the Father's unending smile upon us. This is how we experience justification. Another helpful quote here from Ray Orland Sr. I passed away a few years ago. He's a really uh, just vigorous, just a guy that just looked like he had the glow of God on his face, just this holy happiness because of his uh, walk with Jesus. He says this, uh, Halfway Christianity is the most miserable existence of all. Half-hearted Christians, listen to this, know enough about their sin to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with the Savior to become happy. Other books, when you read about renewal and revival, they say, if you don't grasp your justification and you're a Christian, you will have a very miserable faith in life because you hear about your brokenness all the time, but you don't really believe the good news about you. So it's like you have one ear off. It's like when you have headphones and you only, only one ear works, and you kind of hear the kick drum in one, but you don't really have the bass line in the other, so your dancing is all off, right? If you are a Christian, or you're in the context of the church, and you don't understand the depth of your justification, you're gonna hear a lot about how you're broken and how God calls, because God calls us to be like Jesus. That's a high standard. So you hear about the high standard all the time, but you're not really grasping and listening and applying and remembering and embracing the grace that covers the fact that you're not like Jesus. And so what you're gonna do in your faith is you're just gonna be beat down and miserable all the time. Because you hear, I'm supposed to be this, but you're not really embracing and remembering and applying in a deep way the grace that covers all your flaws and says, no, even though you're not like Jesus, God sees you as if you are. So this idea of your justification that you are seen as just as if you never sinned, just as if you always obeyed through faith in Jesus, that nail has to go deep. Think about this. When you're building something and you're nailing something to a wall, or if it's a straight nail or if it's like a a nail with threads or whatever, um, it needs to go deep, right? If it's going to carry weight, it needs to go deep. So if you're going to put something on your wall, you're going to nail it, hammer it into the wall once, and then hang a giant frame on it, that might stay up for a couple of days. But as soon as the foundations of your life shake, that's going to come crashing down. And so if you don't have any vigor or joy over Jesus, the nail of justification has to go deeper into your mind and heart. And as that happens, then you'll be able to weather whatever shakes your foundation because you understand, I have this approval. I have Christ. I have God's smile. That nail has to go deep. There's another quote. This is a quote, heavy sermon. I usually don't do this, but these are so helpful. It's from Richard Lovelace, Dynamics of Spiritual Life. He says, Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Basically, he's saying, we know this in our head, but we're not applying it to our hearts. He says this, few know enough to start each day with the thoroughgoing stand on this platform. You are accepted, looking outward in faith and claiming the righteousness of Jesus as their very own. Basically, he's saying this, he's he's saying, not many of us start every day with this idea that like, no matter what I do today, I am approved by God because of Jesus. So bring it on. I can handle it. By God's grace, because my identity, my righteousness will never change. No matter how I fail, no matter how I succeed, I'm rooted and anchored in Him. He's saying we don't start our day like that, right, do we? That's not normal to us. And he's saying that's why this shallow grass of justification leads to this lack of joy and, and this lack of humble confidence in, in who we are in Jesus. And, and here's the thing. Because it's a fundamental need to be uh, approved, because we're all in Adam, it's a human nature need, If we don't grasp our justification in Jesus deeply, we're going to look for approval and justification somewhere else. Doesn't doesn't your life story testify to this? That there's probably never been a point at your life in which there wasn't something that you hung your hope of approval on. Maybe it's your grades, maybe it's your looks, maybe it's your friends, maybe it's some sort of skill set that you have. But there's probably never been a point in your life where you weren't clinging to something as your righteousness, as your approval, as your justification. And if we're not anchoring ourselves in Jesus, we're either going to boast in the other thing that justifies us or be really sad when it doesn't. I've told this story before, how I recognized this um, in just the silliest thing when I was playing uh, basketball in my men's league and kept coming home from my games and just being really sad about how poorly I played. Not really sad, more like angry. Um about how poorly I played in my games. I just remember this happening over a few weeks. So I was just like, this is so strange. Like no one, no one saw the game, besides the people there. This isn't, no one's gonna remember this beyond next week. I'm not gonna remember this beyond next week. Why is this bothering me so much? And I realized I was trying to justify myself to myself through how well I was playing at men's rec league basketball. That there was some sort of deficit of insecurity in my life that then this arena of sports in the men's rec league in Somerville that nobody goes to watch became this means to somehow feel secure. You ever, you ever find yourself doing that? Where you put so much of your weight or your identity in this thing you do and a little bit later you're like, That's, that was so silly. If you can't think of it that, what that is, just think about the thing you're most defensive about. What is it about you that you are most defensive about? That's the thing that you use to justify yourself. And so we'll dabble in seeking other justifications if we don't have a deep grasp of our justification in Jesus. So the question for you, question for me is, is our justification, our sense of that, our justification in Jesus, is that growing, is that deepening, or is that shallow? Does that nail go deep, or is it surface level? I want to give you another way to apply this in, in your life is to think about this test. Is the idea that you have God's approval through Jesus, your justification, is it to you more of an abstract idea or is it an experienced reality? Is it more abstract idea or experienced reality? And if it's an abstract idea, you could probably explain it really well, maybe point to verses about it. You, You know it in here, but if it's an experienced reality, it's something that you preach to yourself. So think about it like this. The last moment where you felt unapproved of, where you felt um, insecure, where you felt worthless, how, how quickly were you comforted by the truth that God's smile in Christ is always upon you? This will help us understand if if this is an idea that's abstract or if this is an idea that we experience, that actually comes down from uh, head knowledge and actually parks itself in our lives. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Josie wrote a lot about revival. He says this, he says, most of our unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. And he looks at Psalm, Psalm 42, where the psalmist says, my soul, why are you so downcast? And then he goes on to say, hope in God yells at himself. And Lloyd-Jones says this, "The uh, the main art in spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You have to question to yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you downcast? Turn, upbraid yourself, exhort yourself, say to yourself, hope in God, remind yourself who God is, what God has done, and what he has promised to continue to do. This is the difference between an abstract idea about God, justification, and Jesus versus experiencing it. Do we grab the truth that we know and then do we park it in our lives by reminding ourselves of it, by preaching it to ourselves, by reflecting on it, by bringing it into the situations where we're hurting so that it can, God can come plant himself in our lives and revive us? Other people talk about this idea as preaching the gospel to yourself. How often do you rehearse to yourself that despite when you're confronted with your brokenness, with your sin, how often do you immediately then preach to yourself, Jesus paid for this. God sees me just as if I never sinned, even though I feel so dirty right now. Or I feel so hopeless. I keep having a hard time with this. How often do we preach grace in the message of the cross to ourselves? how often do we preach this to others? This is what we're trying to cultivate in our gospel communities is preaching this this, this gospel to to one another so we can experience justification. I want to give you one way to do this. This is from an author named J.D. Greer. It's called The Gospel Prayer. If you don't know how to do this, you're like, man, I want to do that. I don't know where to start. I would encourage you to think about doing this, uh, this prayer, and I'll put put it on the city. It just talks about, and maybe you can figure out your own rhythm for this, but it talks about just praying every day in addition to whatever other stuff he prays, just praying this prayer. In Jesus, there's nothing I can do that would make you love me more and nothing I have done or could do that would make you love me less. Your presence and approval are all I need today for everlasting joy. You don't don't have to take that prayer and do that, but what would be different if the truth of what Christ has done for you, the truth that he took off his righteousness, put on your sin, and then came to you and put his righteousness upon you, that God views you in the same perfect light that he views his son, what would be different about your fears, your struggles, your burdens? If you took the truth of justification that you know here and brought it to bear in your life every single day, it would probably feel like Jesus was living and walking right beside you moment by moment. That everything that would go sideways, you would just turn and lift up a prayer, Jesus, I hear my justification, help me through this. You would experience him and his grace in a way that you can't if we don't bring his truth to bear in our lives. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of of God. God is inviting us into the joy of the justifying work Jesus has done for us. He wants us to not just know it. He wants us to experience it. He wants us not to just know that it's there, but to live and breathe out of it. He wants us to not live for our justification, but live from it, returning to it so that we'd have joy and vigor in our faith. And so that the critics' math, the critics' math that can crush an acclaimed greatest of all time writer doesn't crush us. God is inviting you and me into the joy of our justification. Will we take him up on it? Will we snatch the truth that we know here and will we bring it to bear and experience it? Will we let the nail of justification go deeper? Or will we be happy just to have it shallowly applied? Justification through Christ, just as if you never sinned, just as if you've always obeyed. Knowing that is the key to joy.